0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In local, state, and sometimes federal regulations, a permission-based market has replaced a freewheeling one. And it's actually worse than that. According to Will Reinhardt of the Center for Growth and Opportunity, he says the discretion given to regulators creates too many ways for the state to veto transactions and new enterprises. And finding ways to dramatically curtail this vetocracy. Should be top of mind for lawmakers. We spoke last month in Las Vegas. So for those of you who weren't listening when we weren't recording, obviously, uh, Will and I were uh, trying to come up with a pithy term that beats Francis Fukuyama's vitocracy,
1: vitocracy. And, uh, the term vitocracy refers to what? The term vitocracy refers to this tendency in our institutions to have overlapping veto powers. What we've seen rise, especially in the last 10, 20 years, is that it's really easy to say no. The best example that I can think about about this is this recent UC Berkeley kerfuffle where one guy said he did not want any new people coming into Berkeley, so he stopped the entire school from expanding. He stopped a massive school expansion over over this, this issue. He just didn't want more people in his Berkeley neighborhood. So he filed a, uh, a, a request under CEQA and was able to stop the entire process. CEQA? CEQA being the California Environmental Quality Act. It's their version of the Environmental Protection Act that they have at the state level.
0: And that effectively allows almost anyone in the state to prevent
1: any development to prevent any development. Yes. If they want to. So it, it provides this massive power to individuals who want to go in front of a judge and say, Hey, this project does not align. I, I I'm giving you all these reasons why. And you know, a lot of them don't have merit, but it allows for these kind of entrepreneurs, right? These policy entrepreneurs, these people in a bad kind of entrepreneurial way to go in and, and stop projects. And we've seen we, this happens a lot. this, California, Berkeley is an example of this. There's examples in healthcare, you know, beds, beds getting stopped from being built. Um, so you know, th- there's, I mean, there's countless examples of this sort of problem.
0: Well, the, the example you pointed to, uh, earlier was Patrick Quinlan,
1: Patrick Quinlan, who
0: tried to get, he's 77 years old now, I guess. Years old. Yeah, and is, I he love tried to get approval for 10 new units of housing on a 17,000-square-foot lot in San Francisco. Yeah,
1: a third of an acre, basically.
0: And the, yeah. the punchline is? So
1: Patrick Quinlan took 40 years to get 10 units of housing built in San Francisco. And in those 40 years, what happened to housing prices in San Francisco? Uh, a lot. I, I, <laughs> the price changed dramatically. Um, funny. I mean, it's kind of dark, but two of his investors actually passed away in the enti- in the ensuing 40 years. There was a whole group of these people who were trying to do this development. And so the majority of them actually are no longer living. There was a group of three, if I recall correctly. So he's the only one that's actually left. Um, everyone else has died in, in the interim time period. The... There is a a, a woman, uh, Kathleen Campbell, that really I think exemplifies, unfortunately, this problem. She said that that the project was the best project, the best version of the project that she had seen in something like 22 years, and that the, it, it the, the just, best
0: the best version of this exact 10 unit development,
1: this 10 unit development, and it, this is an endemic problem. I mean, California is the foil, and California is the. Is the the most egregious and and often the worst examples of this problem, of this problem of vetoocracy, which again is just a broad term for these these kind of overlapping veto players within within political institutions and permitting institutions in particular.
0: Okay, so in and perhaps this is bigger than land use, I would imagine. Yes, it is. Um, But you know, in in that context, we're talking about government officials or uh, people who have delegated powers from the government. Being able to put an X next to an idea and essentially either stop it in its tracks or slow it way down.
1: I think there's two ways to think about the biggest parts of vitocracy. One uh, group that's really important here are these you know these policy entrepreneurs, if you want to call them that. Um, again, I, it's not the best word for it, but I think it's probably the most descriptive. So there are these third parties that are basically coming in and saying, Hey, you're going to stop this development. I'm going to use this environmental protection act, or I'm going to use, you know, a whole range of different acts to slow this, this development down. So that's one side, the, the kind of the policy entrepreneurs. And then the other side that I see it is there's this other sort of kind of related problem happening within government, which is that it takes more and more permits to get to a building. So. They're really, I see the two of the same thing. You're slowing down the process. You're making permitting and in, in land use and housing and telecommunications and in quite quite literally all these kind of like hard infrastructures that that there's this entire thing that's happening. That everything's being slowed down because there's there's many more voices at the table. Some of those are are needed, I think, obviously, but a lot of it's gone too far, and I think that we really need to consider more fully how how to how to reform these systems how to how to change it how to how to change all of this i've got my own ideas and i think there are some good examples that ex- that exist out there but there's a lot that's going on here that i think that we're not paying attention to all too often so outside
0: of the land use context uh what about a regulatory sandbox uh, and i i mentioned that specifically because you know inside of a land use context those land uses would be ongoing uh, exactly. And yeah. There's a lot of upfront investment, but in terms of being able to offer a service mm-hmm. or a new product, uh, it w- it make would make sense for uh, certain products that have no clear public health or safety implications to be able to just move forward, and we can worry about the
1: regulatory state later. Regulatory sandboxes, I think, are a great example of the way to deal with the problem of vetocracy. And there is a clear issue here with products as compared to land use or infrastructure, which can be solved through sandboxes. And and there's a Utah I know has been going has been developing a lot of this um, regulatory sandboxes are, I think, one of the ways to deal with this sort of problem. And describe and,
0: describe what that is.
1: Yeah, So a regulatory sandbox, at least in this context, allows for a certain period of time, typically 18 months to about two years for these products to not be um, uh, regulated or, or or mandated to be regulated in a certain kind of way. So it's kind of a little bit esoteric, but the, the kind of clear example are, you know, a lot of new financial services or financial um, financial products that are coming out. You know, you think about like Robinhood, for example, and that, that has a sort of a, oftentimes, if I recall correctly, those have a, a sandbox carve out in a lot of states to allow them to operate. So we're talking a lot about financial services in particular for regulatory sandboxes, at least that's where a lot of, of um have of development has occurred but that idea that that services and goods should be able to go out into the market and shouldn't necessarily be subject to all the same regulatory approvals that you would have if you're a complex institution or a financial institution those sorts of ideas i I think are still helpful in this broader vetocracy problem which we see is just that there are too many there are too many extra steps to, to these processes of, of getting, you know, of, of getting a house built or, or getting a new business started or, or getting something, you know, getting new infrastructure built. Those, those are very expensive things that we need to be able to do cheap, cheaply and quickly.
0: So, uh, in terms of trying to maybe flip the burden of, uh, regulation onto regulators to provide very good reasons for, uh, stopping a project, whatever it is, be it a, land, a project involving land use or not. Uh, what about just a time limit?
1: Just a saying- time, a shot clock. Yeah, a shot clock. One hundred and eighty days. You you have one hundred and eighty days to either say yes or no. That that's one of the other suggestions that I have. So, shot clock has worked pretty traditionally within telecommunications and broadband deployment. This is uh, an idea that that I see has been actually quite successful in the telecommunications um communication space in particular. And I think that idea can be more broadly applied. You you have some sort of limitation on on when you can bring a, you know, a a disapproval or something that, you know, that, that would potentially stop the project those, those sorts of ideas, you know, a shot clock, um, something where you have like a carve out. I think those are probably the two most successful real world examples of it. There's a whole bunch of more theoretical things that we could probably do. I'm, I'm a little bit less convinced of those sorts of ideas, but the shot clock, some sort of limitation, the other. So shot clock, uh, a limitation is, is one of the ideas, the regulatory sandbox, and there's, couple ways you can structure a regulatory sandbox. The other thing that I think should be considered is how do we understand, uh, people who are bringing these sorts of cases, these, these people, you know, a a great example for, for San Francisco is, um, this, you know, this one guy, Ryan Delk, who is, who, you know, just a, a guy that lives in San Francisco mentioned that, that effectively there's only six or seven people who stop all residential and building, department building within San Francisco itself. And I live in Washington DC and there's one guy, there's one guy that goes and opposes everything. If you live in DC, he's the, the 10 act guy. You know, he's this, he's this tenants rights uh, individual who constantly is, is putting up flyer in literature. He's going to every single meeting. Um, it's those sorts of individuals, which I don't know how you would potentially limit their ability to influence these meetings, um, or try to restructure it so there 's so that those individuals don 't have an outsized voice, and one of the big benefits of covid you know again lots of detriments obviously to covid one of the big benefits to covid has been that through the opening up of of you know city uh city meetings and city planning meetings that uh, allowing this to actually go online that they're hearing from new voices. They're hearing from people who are actually YIMBYs, right? that want development. And so they're hearing a very different sort of voice that is actually happening, or they're, they're hearing very different voices now um, and have been in, over the last two to three years because, unfortunately, because of, because of what's happened with COVID.
0: Continuing on with the, the land use context, we associate uh, restrictive zoning with local communities and not so much with like state regulation, and my thought has been, well, what if you make the the zoning or the approval process hyper local, which is to say, uh, for a, like a housing development, anyone who owns property that touches this property, they sign off on it.
1: Good to go. Hyper local is another idea that's being suggested, particularly in England. This is. I don't know about this area as well as I know about others. I I'm This
0: in, is just off the top of my head.
1: But you're exactly right. This question of local voice is something that I am just now getting into with this project, but I think it's also another key component. And and the problem that you often see within land use and particularly residential development or or building, you know, building more homes is that you have these you have these individuals who are able to stop the process. And by restricting it, by narrowly restricting it with a hyperlocal zoning, the idea is that you would have some sort of uh, benefit, you know, that the voices that are impacted or the people that are impacted the most would be the, would be the only people that can actually stop the building of these projects. That might be helpful, but I really, the, the question that I really have is how big is that line? And that's oftentimes a, uh, a concern of, of how you actually develop and structure these sorts of, you know, these are the, these are the rights, these kind of local rights. This I think is a little bit more hypothetical. And, and again, there has been some, ha- there has been some development in the UK along these lines, but I'm not as well versed, at least in this space and haven't seen as many real world applications as compared to the shot clock and the regulatory sandboxes, which actually seem to be pretty effective at, 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 um, allowing for new businesses and new development to to actually be be put into the ground and to be started, and and I think those are just a little bit more practical rather than the the kind of narrow limiting uh, of, of of zoning rights. So
0: uh, aside from shot clocks and uh, regulatory sandboxes, which again regulatory sandbox we've seen in Utah and.
1: There's some in Tennessee and Nebraska, if I recall correctly. There, uh, Arizona has has another big project. There's a lot of there's a lot of states who have done a lot of interesting work in this.
0: Okay, so what have we seen so far?
1: So the biggest the biggest benefits, the biggest uh, the biggest wins in this regulatory sandbox space have typically been within the the financial services communities. A lot of new uh, electronic. Uh, transfer technologies have also been, have been supported by this. Uh, I I think that we're still waiting to see the, the super big benefits of, of these projects. Cause again, these, these bills, most of these bills are at this point, only two to three years old. You know, there have been, again, a lot of successes within these kind of financial services, but my, my sense is that those services probably would have been differently regulated regardless that they, they exist in a, in a different space, you know, they might not have physical locations that all of the things that made the regulatory sandboxes beneficial, or at least work in the context of financial services and, you know, and, and Uber and Lyft and all of the, you know, the ride-sharing service or our ride-sharing platforms, all of those sorts of new technologies probably are, 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 I don't know are very different than what we see in the traditional transportation and infrastructure and housing. So bringing the regulatory sandbox idea to the more traditional or the, you know, the hard infrastructure space, I think is, is still a big gap that needs to be done. There's a lot of research that I think still needs to be, to be applied here and to actually think through critically how, for example, NEPA would be, or this is the National Environmental Protection Act, how, how it could you know how it can have certain kinds of exemptions. You know, there's there's a lot of work I think that still needs fundamental work that still needs to be done here in, in policy analysis. And I really hope that listeners will will actually try to work on this. My colleague Eli Dorado has done a lot of really good work in the in the space of permitting reform. And and honestly, I just think that there needs to be a lot more done because this is a you know this is a a topic that keeps on coming up over and over again. Um, and and honestly the i kind of had a i I was thinking about this recently that you know it's it's low-hanging fruit but low-hanging fruit is sometimes the hardest fruit to see
0: will reinhardt is a senior research fellow at the center for growth and opportunity we spoke last month in las vegas subscribe to and give a rating to the cato daily podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on twitter at cato podcast